The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Today, I'm going to be telling you about a serial killer, but not just any serial killer, and his status as such is even debated to this day. Wayne Bertram Williams is a convicted murderer who is currently serving a life sentence at the Telfair State Prison in the state of Georgia for the murders of two men. The catch is, is that he is believed to be responsible for at least 24 out of the 30 murders that took place in the city of Atlanta between 1979 and 1981, known as the Atlanta Child Murders. Wayne Williams has never been tried for any of these other murders, but as far as the courts were concerned, he was as good as guilty. These murders happened over 40 years ago, and yet, some of the answers are still unclear. The science used to convict Wayne Williams is questionable to some, and many people think he may be innocent of some of the crimes attributed to him. So, I'd like you to put on your armchair detective hats, because even... Personally, I don't really know what to make of this one. I'll be looking forward to hearing some feedback from you. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. On May 22nd, 1981, Police in Atlanta, Georgia had their eyes on the James Jackson Parkway Bridge, a bridge that spanned the Chattahoochee River. A surveillance team had been dispatched to watch over the bridge because several bodies had recently been discovered in the area. The carnage was so significant over the course of two years that the FBI became involved and predicted that whoever was killing all of these people, these children, would once again dump the next victim at their favorite site, over the James Jackson Parkway Bridge. On that night back in May in 1981, the surveillance team found themselves face to face with essentially exactly what the FBI predicted. As they waited and watched in the dead of night, they overheard a large splash into the Chattahoochee River below. The surveillance officers noted that the first car to then exit the bridge was a white Chevrolet station wagon, and they were able to successfully intercept its exit off of the bridge around 2.50 a.m. When they approached the vehicle and began questioning the person driving, they noted that the driver stated his business in the area around this time of night was that he was just passing through. The driver said that he was on his way to check an address in the nearby area of Smyrna, This address reportedly belonged to a young, prospective pop singer by the name of Cheryl Johnson. This story, at face value, would have seemed pretty legitimate. The driver of this vehicle was Wayne Williams, just shy of his 23rd birthday, and he began his adult life curating a career in radio, which snowballed into networking with stations such as WIGO and WAOK, before landing Wayne some opportunities to dabble in pop music production and management. He had lived in the Atlanta area forever, being born in the neighborhood of Dixie Hills. 
So Wayne Williams breaking into pop music production, being on his way to scope out the address of a new prospective star, was not too far out of the realm of reality. However, police would later find out that both the phone number he gave and the name Cheryl Johnson were totally fake. It was two days later, on May 24th, still back in 1981, that the nude body of 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater, who had been missing for four days prior, was discovered in the Chattahoochee River. The medical examiner at the time ruled that Cater had died of asphyxia, although it was never specified as strangulation. But police would recall their encounter with Wayne Williams two nights prior over the James Jackson Parkway Bridge, and further recalled the splash they heard over the side. It was only then when the 24-inch nylon cord and pair of gloves that they noted in Wayne's passenger seat stuck out to them, and they decided it was time to talk with Wayne Williams a little bit more. Back in April of that same year, another male victim by the name of Jimmy Ray Payne was found by a couple fishing in the Chattahoochee River near the intersection of U.S. Interstate 285 and the Donald Lee Hollowell Parkway. Jimmy, like Nathaniel, was found nude with the exception of his underwear, and his cause of death was also determined to be asphyxiation. It seemed to be a probable avenue of investigation to see if that nylon cord, the one in Wayne Williams' passenger seat on the night of May 22nd, could it be located again, was the one used to asphyxiate Nathaniel Cater, and there could also be a possibility that it was also used to kill Jimmy Ray Payne. However, unfortunately, it was never located. But upon bringing in Wayne Williams for questioning anyways, police would uncover something else. When formally interviewed and questioned about Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy, Wayne Williams would eventually fail three separate polygraph tests. However, even back in the 80s, police needed a little bit more than that to warrant justifiable suspicion. They would end up retrieving fibers off of the deceased body of Jimmy Ray Payne and submitted them for analysis alongside some of Wayne Williams' belongings and samples from his home and vehicle. In the meantime, while waiting for those results to come in, people who knew and worked with Williams and had seen him around the months of April and May back in 1981 would end up telling police that they saw Williams with odd scratches on his face and arms around that time. The forensic analysis of the fibers on Jimmy Ray Payne came back only after the cloud of suspicion around Wayne Williams was steadily growing. The forensic analysis concluded that the fibers found on Jimmy Ray Payne's body were found to match fibers belonging to the inside of Wayne Williams' home, hairs from his dog, and material from inside of his car. To the police, this meant that, at the very least, Wayne Williams was in contact with Jimmy Ray Payne very close to the time of his death, if not afterwards. When information about a possibly guilty party in the deaths of recent male victims around Atlanta became public, Williams took it upon himself to use his radio personality charm to his advantage. He would end up holding a press conference outside of his home to proclaim his innocence. In the typical fashion of a seasoned liar who wants to make themselves look more credible, he even offered up to the public the fact that he failed three polygraph tests but he attributed the results to everything except for his own involvement. However, despite desperately proclaiming his innocence, 
Wayne Williams would be brought in for questioning once again by police on June 3rd and end up sitting in an FBI interrogation room for 12 hours into the early hours of June 4th. He would unfortunately be released without charge after this incident, but it wouldn't take very long before police were able to catch up with him and the forensic evidence had come through. Just like the fibers found on the body of Jimmy Ray Payne, fibers collected from the body of Nathaniel Cater would also be attributed to Wayne Williams. These fibers would be identified as a very specific type of nylon yarn, which was sold to a Georgia carpet company in Atlanta. This company, West Point Pepperell, used this nylon yarn to manufacture a line of carpets called Luxaire. The fibers that were tested, even down to the unique yellow-green color, matched that of a Luxaire carpet found in Wayne Williams' home. At the time, police estimated approximately 8,000 homes in Atlanta had a Luxaire carpet in that same color, but given additional fibers on Nathaniel Cater's body also matched those found in Wayne Williams' car, as well as hair from his dog, police felt like this evidence was as solid as it was going to get. Interestingly, earlier on in the investigations, the news had actually reported that police might be able to use tangible fiber evidence to figure out who was killing people in the city of Atlanta. From my research, it seems like this is why police were surveying the James Jackson Parkway Bridge. In truth, it seems like this is why the killer was leaving bodies in the Chattahoochee River, to wash off any potential fiber evidence that police might find, that the killer suspected police might be able to use. At this point, police figured they had enough evidence for an arrest. Not only did they have fiber evidence, but also Wayne's illegitimate alibi, and there were also reports that he was seen with Nathaniel Cater right before he went missing, a claim that Wayne couldn't find a solid explanation for. Wayne Williams was finally arrested on June 21st of 1981 for the murders of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne in Fulton County, Georgia. It took a little while before prosecutors were ready for trial, and it was for good reason. Because when the trial finally started on January 6th of 1982, prosecuting attorneys brought forward fiber evidence from the bodies of an additional 19 victims that were found in Atlanta over the past two years. The fibers they had analyzed from these victims matched those found in Wayne's car, on his bedspread, in his bathroom, a pair of gloves he had, some of his clothes, again his carpet, and his dog. Again, this was about as solid as it was going to get in this case. But unfortunately, for reasons I don't really understand, the evidence brought forth about these victims was not deemed admissible during Wayne's trial. Despite two separate FBI agents testifying that it would have been virtually impossible for these victims not to have come in contact with Wayne Williams, Georgia Supreme Court Justice T. Smith decided that additional charges could not be laid. However, despite this, police would ultimately decide that Wayne Williams was inevitably their guy. He was inevitably the person who had been responsible for the string of murders that had been happening. If they were using fiber evidence to convict him of two murders, they could reliably assume that the same evidence would have convicted him of the other ones if allowed. 
These murders, although no formal charges would ever be laid in connection with them, were dubbed the Atlanta Child Murders, and most, if not all, were attributed to Wayne Williams, and his presumed reign of terror began in 1979. In the middle of that year, early summer, late spring, 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith, who lived in the Kimberly Court housing projects, and 13-year-old Alfred Evans disappeared four days apart. Their bodies would be found on July 28th, only a short time after they went missing, in a wooded area in Atlanta by an elderly woman who was reportedly in the area just looking for cans. 14-year-old Edward had been shot with a 22 caliber weapon, and he had a visible wound on his upper back. Alfred, on the other hand, who was an amateur boxer and basketball player, had been strangled, with the official wording in the report being, quote, probable asphyxiation by strangulation. These two young children were believed to be the very first victims of the Atlanta child killer, presumed again to be Wayne Williams. A few months later, on September 4, 1979, 14-year-old Milton Harvey disappeared while running an errand for his mother to the Citizens and Southern Bank, which was only three miles or so away from his home. Milton was seen riding a yellow 10-speed bicycle, which would later be found a week or so after his disappearance in a remote area of Atlanta, resting gently beside a tree near the Charlie Brown Airport. It was only later in November of that year when his body was actually located, but his cause of death was never determined. His case, although lumped in with the Atlanta child murders, is still technically considered unsolved. On October 21st, 19-year-old Yusuf Bell was also running an errand for someone else when he disappeared, just like Milton Harvey. He went to a store to buy tobacco powder for a neighbor at Reese Grocery on McDaniel Street, only about an eight-minute drive from the bank Milton Harvey was last seen at. A witness would come forward after Yusuf disappeared and state that she saw him near an intersection getting into a blue car. Yusuf's body would be found on November 8th in the abandoned E.P. Johnson Elementary School by a janitor who was just looking for a place to relieve himself. Yusuf was found clothed in the same brown cutoff shorts that he was wearing when he went missing, although they had a piece of masking tape stuck to them. After further examination, it had been pretty clear that Yusuf had been hit over the head twice, but his official cause of death was deemed to be strangulation. At this point, despite Milton Harvey and Yusuf Bell going missing very close to one another, and despite both himself and Alfred Evans being found strangled, police didn't initially connect these deaths to one another, despite four of them happening within the span of half a year. It's possible that this was because the children had been found with a range of causes of death. Edward Hope Smith was found shot instead of strangled. Or maybe it was just a large oversight. But either way, the killer was only getting started, and it was evident that police were nowhere near his trail. The first victim of 1980 was 12-year-old Angel Lanier, who disappeared on March 4th of that year. She left her home around 4 p.m. wearing an all-denim outfit and was last seen at a friend's house watching Sanford and Son. Unfortunately, Angel would never return home. Her body was found only six days later in a wooded, vacant lot around Campbellton Road, 
not too far from where the other victims disappeared. She was found wearing the clothes that she was last seen wearing. However, a pair of white panties that did not belong to Angel were found stuffed in her mouth. Angel's hands were bound by an electrical cord, and her cause of death was later determined to be strangulation with a ligature, presumably the same electrical cord she was tied with. Her case, although it has both similarities and differences to the others, is also formally unsolved. Only a week after Angel went missing, our killer begins to pick up the pace with which he is killing. On March 11th, Jeffrey Mathis, who was only 11 years old, disappeared while, again, running an errand for his mother. He was just on his way to get some cigarettes for her and possibly a loaf of bread. He was one of seven children in his family, and he just happened to be the unlucky child selected to run this errand. Like the rest of the victims I'll discuss today, Jeffrey never returned home. He was last seen by a girl who would come forward after his disappearance to tell police that she had seen Jeffrey getting into a blue car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man, next to a grocery store called Anderson's Produce. An entire 11 months after he disappeared, Jeffrey's body was found in a wooded area by the FBI and their training dogs in February of 1981. By this time, Jeffrey was so badly decomposed that, unfortunately, it was impossible to identify a conclusive cause of death. Then, on May 18th of 1980, after an approximate two-month hiatus, 15-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared after being last seen answering the phone in his own house, and then abruptly leaving. Eric was seemingly in a bit of a hurry, grabbing his bike, carrying a hammer, and then going. Possibly he was lured out to repair a friend's bike, or maybe a friend actually needed his help and it wasn't a ruse. Regardless, Eric never got to where he was going, and his body was actually found the next day, on May 19th, next to the bike that he was seen leaving on near the rear garage of a local bar, which just so happened to be next to the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. Interestingly, Eric Middlebrooks was found with his pockets turned inside out, and he had stab wounds on his chest and arms. Even more interestingly, much unlike the others, his official cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. Even though it had become evident at this point that young children in the area of Atlanta, Georgia were being kidnapped and murdered, Eric's case was quite different. Eric was stabbed and beaten, not strangled or even shot. Some people speculate that our killer was just getting ahead of himself, a little bit excited about this new hobby he had started and how easy it was to execute. It's almost like our killer was trying to find what suited him best. Others speculate that his killer was actually not the one who was responsible for the rest of the Atlanta child murders. Some people speculate that Eric's death could be attributed to the fact that only a few weeks prior to his disappearance, he had actually testified in court against three other teenage boys in a robbery case. It's possible that these teenagers could have retaliated against Eric, but it's really hard to say. On June 9th of that same year, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson disappeared on his way to the local community pool at the DeKalb County Midway Recreation Center. 
Christopher's body was not found until much later, not until January of 1981. Interestingly, he was wearing clothes that were different from the ones he was last seen in. He was also found alongside the body of another victim who went missing an entire month after Christopher did. His name was Earl Terrell. Christopher was found to have died by strangulation, the same as many of the previous victims, a pattern that at this point had become a little bit more apparent. On June 22nd, only a few weeks after Christopher Richardson disappeared, seven-year-old Latonya Wilson also disappeared, but this time she was lured out of her parents' apartment. According to a witness who would come forward later, Latonya appeared to have been abducted by two men. This would be the second witness sighting of two men. One of these men was apparently brazen enough to crawl through a window into the apartment where Latonya lived, and was then seen holding her in his arms as he spoke to the other man in the parking lot. By the time she was found deceased, on October 18th, behind a fence at the end of Verbena Street in Atlanta, her body, like Jeffrey Mathis, had been entirely skeletonized, and no formal cause of death could be established. This is where things get really interesting, because only one day after Latonya went missing, on June 23, 1980, 10-year-old Aaron Weish also disappeared after having been seen near a local grocery store, like many previous victims. Just like Yusuf Bell and Jeffrey Mathis, Aaron was seen by a witness getting into a blue car, a Chevrolet, with either one or two men around 6 p.m. Thankfully, a witness would come forward with quite a detailed description of who she saw Aaron interacting with before the disappearance. The witness said that Aaron was lured away from Tanner's Corner Grocery by an approximately six foot tall, 180 pound black male who was likely in his 30s and had a mustache with a goatee. This description matched up with the previous others who had come forward regarding Jeffrey Mathis and matched loosely to the description of Wayne Williams, but police didn't know that yet. The following day on June 24th, 1980, Aaron's body was found under a bridge. This time, however, much unlike some of the other victims, his cause of death was deemed asphyxiation, but not by manual strangulation, not even close. Aaron suffered a neck injury from a fall, presumably being tossed over the side of the bridge. Unfortunately, the carnage in the Atlanta child murders does not even come close to ending here. In July of 1980, two more children disappeared, nine-year-old Anthony Carter and 10-year-old Earl Terrell. Again, Earl's body was found alongside Christopher Richardson, who was abducted back in June, and they were found together in January of the next year, 1981. Anthony, on the other hand, was found to have suffered multiple stab wounds, which was remarkably unlike any of the other murders, only being similar to Eric Middlebrooks. But even then, Eric himself didn't die from his stab wounds like Anthony did. Eric's cause of death was blunt force trauma. On August 20th, another 13-year-old boy named Clifford Jones also disappeared. Jones was reported last seen after he got permission from, presumably a family member, to go off with a woman and help her with her groceries. Despite engaging in an altruistic, seemingly innocuous act of kindness, Clifford was unfortunately never seen again. 
It didn't take very long before his body was found, however, next to a dumpster around the back of a former Hollywood Plaza shopping center in Atlanta. Clifford was found covered in bruises and seemingly superficial cuts from the photos I've seen. He was dressed in an outfit that was different again to the one he was last seen in. He was wearing red and blue shorts and white tennis shoes that didn't belong to him. It would later be determined that Clifford died from asphyxiation via ligature strangulation. Again, although similar to the other murders, the fact that he was dressed in a different outfit is a key point of contention in his case. The only case that was similar was the discovery of 12-year-old Christopher Richardson's body, who was also wearing clothes that were different from the ones he was last seen in. There were apparently witnesses who implicated various men in the disappearance and death of Clifford Jones. Some people even speculate that another killer took inspiration from the ongoing Atlanta child murders, like a copycat, and decided to put their own twist on the job to fulfill their own fantasy. That's possibly why two of these victims were found in different clothes. It possibly explains some of the varying causes of death. But for all intents and purposes, people just point at Wayne Williams. Before the end of 1980, four additional children would go missing, a few of them even acquainted with previous victims. On September 14th, 10-year-old Darren Glass was reported missing and his body has never been recovered. On October 9th, 12-year-old Charles Stevens also went missing. His body was found the next day, on the 10th. He was suffocated. On November 1st, nine-year-old Aaron Jackson went missing. His body was also discovered the next day, lying face up in a riverbank. He had been strangled. Again in November, on the 30th, 16-year-old Patrick Rogers disappeared. Patrick was found deceased on December 7th in the Chattahoochee River. Police speculated that he had also been dropped from the James Jackson Parkway bridge above. Given that, his official cause of death was deemed to be blunt force trauma. And that brings us to 1981, where unfortunately, the killing still does not stop. In January, 14-year-old Luby Geeter disappeared, and he was found less than a month later, clearly deceased and determined to be from asphyxia. Again in January, one of Luby's friends, Terry Pugh, also went missing. Terry also actually lived in the same apartment complex as Edward Hope Smith, presumably the first victim of the Atlanta child murders, in the Kimberly Court housing projects. Terry was found strangled, much like many of the previous victims. Between February and March of that year, six more bodies were discovered. Eddie Duncan, whose cause of death was never identified, Timothy Hill, who was asphyxiated, Joseph Bell, who was asphyxiated, Patrick Baltazar, who was strangled, Curtis Walker, who was also asphyxiated, and Larry Rogers, who was strangled. In April of that year, 28-year-old John Porter and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne were killed. As well, on May 12th, FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old William Barrett on a curb near a wooded area by his home. An identified witness, 32-year-old Harold Wood, came forward and said that he was in the area when William was last seen. He said that his car ran out of gas, and he described seeing a black man standing over and observing the same area where William Barrett's body would later be discovered before driving away in a white over blue Cadillac. 
It was near the end of May, as I mentioned, that 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater's body was also found. He was last seen by the entrance of the Riatlo Theater in Atlanta, holding hands with someone by the name of Wayne Williams. And that brings us back up to speed at the time of Wayne's arrest in summer of 1981. Despite the different ages of the victims and, again, the varying causes of death, according to former Atlanta investigator Chet Detlinger, what is more telling about the murders is actually the geographical profile. All of these murders were connected by 11 major streets in the Atlanta area, no exceptions, and this was despite the city of Atlanta being quite large, even back in the 80s, and having a lot more infrastructure than 11 major streets can handle. This area was specific. By forensic psychology standards, there is almost no greater giveaway than geographical profiling. It's an incredibly reliable technique used by investigators when dealing with serial offenders to triangulate their stomping grounds. And this goes for killers, sex offenders, arsonists, you name it. What makes it so reliable is that the methodology of geographical profiling is contingent on many variables and characteristics of an offender profile. Like anything with investigations, there is really no one-size-fits-all technique to pinpointing somebody's location if they're guilty of crimes like this. But there are several ways to tailor the methods of geographical profiling contingent on an offender's previous crime location, what kind of offender they are, how they hunt and kill people, critical roadways in the area, methods of transportation available in the area, the routines of their victims and similarities between them, and some of the physical boundaries in the area like lakes, bridges, what have you. It makes it a lot easier to pinpoint a serial offender's location based on the tailoring of these characteristics. But this is also what makes serial killers like Israel Keys, for example, so tricky. That man traveled across the United States to fulfill his murderous desire on purpose, traveling across state lines, going on quote-unquote fishing trips, and really just killing anybody he had his eye on. It was only when he killed someone in his home state of Alaska at that time that he was ever caught. But this killer, the killer of all these children, he stayed in a specific area, and it was one more reason why Wayne Williams looked so guilty. He had only ever been an Atlanta resident, and if anyone knew the ins and outs of those 11 major streets, it would definitely be him. Other evidence included, again, the fibers connected to Williams that were found on almost every victim, some of which were hairs from his dog. Other victims had fibers from his Luxair carpet in his car. Some victims had combinations of these fibers, but there were also several witnesses who would come forward regarding seeing Wayne Williams with several of the victims during their last moments alive, unaware that they were in the presence of a killer, just like Nathaniel Cater. However, despite the evidence about these other victims not being allowed in Williams' trial, prosecutors were confident that they could secure a conviction for the murders of Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater at the very least. That way, Wayne Williams would be off the street and the greater public was no longer at risk. And Wayne Williams certainly wasn't helping his case either. During his 1982 trial, he became combative. Even while taking the stand in his own defense, he couldn't keep his composure. He was angry, and if he was innocent, 
then rightfully so. But the police, nor the prosecutors, nor the jury thought that he was. After a 12-hour deliberation period, the jury found him guilty of both murders on February 27th on the basis of fiber evidence, inconsistent alibis, and eyewitness testimony. Williams was sentenced then to serve two consecutive life sentences in Georgia's Hancock State Prison in Sparta. Wayne's conviction was celebrated, but himself, including a handful of supporters, were adamant about maintaining his innocence. Williams would file a habeas corpus petition, essentially demanding proof that his imprisonment was lawful and justified. He also requested a retrial. Initially, Butts County Superior Court Judge Hal Craig denied this appeal on a technicality that another justice would point out. But most of George's legal servants knew that Wayne wasn't simply going to take this no and just quit. Despite this, however, despite knowing that Wayne Williams was going to fight with every fiber of his being against his conviction, according to the Attorney General at the time, Thurbert Baker, he said that his office would do everything in their power to uphold Wayne's conviction. Again, I can only speculate that this was because not only did they find him guilty of two murders, but given the countless others that had happened in the area and the evidence they had to prove Wayne's involvement, it was just better to keep him off the street. In 2004, Williams sought retrial again, with his attorneys now arguing that law enforcement officials who were investigating the murders that happened neglected to be forthcoming about potentially exculpatory evidence, evidence against a second party, evidence that could possibly prove someone else killed these people, someone else killed Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. The argument was that Atlanta officials covered up evidence they found regarding involvement in the murders from the Ku Klux Klan, and they did this to prevent some sort of race war in the city. Mind you, all victims in question here, even though you can't see them because this is a podcast, are black. Amongst the aforementioned evidence in this appeal was a confidential police memo where officers had taken notes during a discussion with an informant. This informant told police that the Ku Klux Klan was involved in some of the murders. It turns out that in August of 2005, an official investigative report revealed that a man by the name of Charles T. Sanders, a white supremacist affiliated with the KKK, was an early suspect in the Atlanta child murders. Charles did not necessarily claim responsibility directly for the murders, but back in 1981, he told an informant for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or the GBI, that he wiped out a generation of black kids. Unfortunately, he used a horrifically racist word to describe these children that I won't repeat, but you get the idea. We can assume here that this informant and the one previously mentioned are the same. And again, although he never claimed responsibility to this informant directly, back in 1986, an article came out in Spin that claimed another anonymous informant heard Charles say that he actually was involved, and he also implicated his brothers. 
However, if we think back to the statement of facts that were read to you previously in all of these cases, all sightings of potential suspects who were seen with or near the victims during their final moments were described as men of color, either dark-skinned or light-skinned. These witness descriptions don't align with the story that Charles Sanders told. As a white supremacist, I'm sure you can assume that he was not a man of color. And there's also no further evidence to suggest he could have been involved in the crimes. No fiber evidence like there is for Wayne Williams, only just that he wanted to take credit for it, like many twisted and particularly bigoted criminals do. If it were one witness sighting of a man of color near one of the victims, I understand how maybe some people would write that off as a coincidence, but there were several, and I don't think that's a coincidence. However, it turns out that officers did not intentionally cover any of this up. The tip about Charles was received, and it was investigated, at least according to Atlanta Circuit District Attorney Louis Slatton, but no conclusive link between the tip and the murders and Charles was ever found. But the basis of this appeal back in 2004 was not regarding whether or not the police investigated the tip, but whether or not they shared the information about it with the defense during discovery for Wayne Williams' trial. Which, turns out, they did not. And in all fairness, Wayne's defense attorney could have used it to instill reasonable doubt into the minds of the jury about a potential other suspect. Another reason why Williams was requesting a retrial was because he wanted to argue that the fiber evidence used to convict him for the murders of Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater, as well as attribute him to countless other murders of children, would apparently, in his mind, not stand up to scientific scrutiny. But according to the FBI archives, fiber evidence is exactly how they place perpetrators at the scene of a crime. I have a quote directly from their archives that I'm going to read for you right now. Textile fibers can be exchanged between two individuals, between an individual and an object, and between two objects. When fibers are matched with a specific source, a value is placed on that association. This value is dependent on many factors, including the type of fiber that was found, the color or variation in color of the fiber, the number of fibers found, the location of the fibers at the crime scene or on the victim, and the number of different fibers at the crime scene or on the victim that match the clothing of the suspect." End quote. Despite the practice of forensic analysis of fiber evidence being readily in use with many police agencies across the world, it really is the fiber evidence that have a lot of people convinced that Wayne Williams is innocent, again, based on the fact that they don't think it would stand up to scientific scrutiny. And this idea was especially popular in members of the Atlanta community who knew Wayne Williams. In their minds, he was a child of two professional and well-known teachers in the area who, as a family, were well-liked in the community. It was hard for people to believe that someone they'd known for seemingly ever could be capable of such violence. And then to see the damning evidence be fibers instead of classic DNA or fingerprints, it was a hard pill to swallow for many. Even if he was responsible for the deaths of Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater, which 
that was determined to be true in a court of law, it was hard for them to imagine Wayne Williams, just shy of his 23rd birthday, killing so many children. Some of these people simply chalked the fiber evidence up to pseudoscience. Others have gone through the evidence with a fine-toothed comb to find methodological flaws. And interestingly, they found some. And this is where the real debate starts about Wayne Williams' status as a serial killer. Because the murders of the Atlanta children were never brought to trial but still attributed to Wayne Williams, many have taken it upon themselves to clear his name informally. DNA testing performed in 2012 was intended to re-examine hairs found on the body of 11-year-old victim Patrick Baltazar. The results were inconclusive, but the DNA sequence did reveal that only 29 out of 1148 black men on file had any sort of match with the sample tested, one of whom was Wayne Williams. People have also had issues with the hairs found on bodies that belonged to Wayne's dog. He had a German Shepherd. However, even if these hairs were retested, which they were in 2007 by the University of California School of Veterinary Medicine, the results themselves would never be more conclusive than they already were, which was supposedly kind of shaky, according to some. The director of that specific lab, Elizabeth Wickdom, stated that although the result of the retest was significant and once again pointed to Wayne Williams, they were not conclusive. She further stated that the DNA tested from the dog hairs was mitochondrial DNA, a different type of DNA that doesn't live in the nucleus of our cells and it's not quite the same as what we learn about in grade school. This kind of DNA is difficult to pinpoint to a particular dog. Instead, the results were about 1 in 100. However, given these results and the ones from the 2012 retest of fibers found on Patrick Baltazar, the FBI have stated that Williams still cannot be excluded. I mean, what are the chances that he's on one list of only 29, but also on another of only 100? If you multiply those values together and get some sort of probability, I feel like it's going to be pretty low. But even then, despite this statement from the FBI, some people have even had issues with the reliability of their judgment. A Department of Justice study released in April of 2015 concluded that apparently several of the fiber analyses conducted by the FBI in the 80s and 90s, quote, may have failed to meet professional standards, unquote. Defense attorney Lynn Watley on the case said that this announcement from the DOJ would be enough to form the basis for another appeal in Wayne's conviction. But prosecutors responded promptly by arguing back that the fiber evidence, even if it wasn't as conclusive as everyone would have hoped, the same evidence that's been so controversial was only one part out of many parts that solidified Wayne's initial conviction. In response to the controversy, some of the cases in the Atlanta child murders have been reopened, but not all of them. As well, as recently as 2019, on March 21st, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, in conjunction with the Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields, announced together that they would commit to retesting the evidence from all the murders, if applicable, which would be summoned from the Atlanta Police Department, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. 
as of June 21, 2021, about 40% of the evidence subject to retest had been completed, and thus far, no groundbreaking news of a new suspect has been announced. Again, I have to make it clear, Williams was never formally tried for the Atlanta child murders. However, police informally attribute many of them to him. But even the number of murders that are attributed to Williams varies depending on who you ask. I've seen 29, I've seen 24, 22. According to former FBI profiler John E. Douglas in his book Mindhunter, he believes that forensic and behavioral evidence conclusively point to Wayne as the killer of 11 young people in Atlanta. But he says there's no strong evidence to link Wayne Williams to all or even most of the deaths in the city between 1979 and 1981. But on the contrary, prosecuting attorney Joseph Drawlett points out that once Wayne Williams was arrested, the murders of children and young men in Atlanta stopped entirely, and there has been no similar patterns of death since. Wayne Williams is currently serving time at the Telfair State Prison. He will be eligible for parole in November of 2027. What do you all think of this case? I'm not entirely sure. I'm not well-versed in the validity of fiber evidence. As well, it's hard to deny that there are well-established law enforcement professionals who argue both sides of Williams' potential guilt in all of these cases. I think it's very telling that once Wayne Williams was arrested, the murders stopped entirely. But if he was innocent and the real killer is still out there, could he have simply moved? Would he have continued elsewhere? It's hard to say. I think the whole geographical profiling thing is very valid and very reliable. But if police were sort of tunnel visioned on Wayne Williams and the real killer moved, they wouldn't be trying to track where other murders were happening, unless they are and we just don't know about it. But it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. I'd love to hear what you think about this case. You can let me know on Instagram at crimopediapod, and if you have any case suggestions or anything you'd like to hear about, you can leave me a case suggestion on the homepage of my website at crimopediapod.ca. I think that's all from me today, everyone. This case really made my head spin. So I think I'm going to leave it to you to come to your own conclusions. I don't even think law enforcement can come to a conclusion. Don't forget to leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening, and I'll see you here for the next episode on September 30th, 2022. Take care, everyone, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.